we're, we're, nearing, we're nearing the end of Acts. We have two more weeks to go. So if you're, if you're joyed to be spending time in Acts, I'm so sorry it's ending. If you are ready to move on with something else, the end is nigh. We're getting close. Um, <laughs> this, um, this, this last few weeks, um, I, I don't know if you, raise your hand if you're a podcast listener. That's something that, that you, some, some of you guys like to do that. Um, I've been listening to a podcast for the last six or seven weeks that has really captured my interest, um, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, if you're not familiar, Mars Hill was a church that was founded by a, a man named Mark Driscoll in the late 90s, uh, early, right around the millennium change, and grew within a span of a very short amount of time to be the largest church in the country, uh, and then died within a matter of six months in 2014. Uh, it's, it's an incredible story of a church that rises and falls. I think at the height of it, it was worshiping about 12,500 people each Sunday, uh, which is just massive. Um, and so it's, it's this case study that looks at what went wrong at Mars Hill, what went wrong with the church, what went wrong in the leadership. It interviews members over the years. It interviews staff members that have been brought on staff and fired falsely and all kinds of accusations. And here's the real kicker. That, that caused me to want to dig into this and listen more. Uh, nothing happened in terms of what you would usually think of catastrophic leadership failures in the church. When we, when we hear that a church died overnight, you know, the pastor fell from grace, there's usually some kind of sexual impropriety or there's some financial mess, you know, they were stealing or those kinds of major things. Those things weren't at play. There was some emotional abuse, there was some anger issues, there was some perhaps God complex issues. <laughs> Um, at play. But what we see is this giant church, the leader falls, the other leaders fall along with them, and within six months they go from all disbanding as churches. Some of those campuses operate in some small, autonomous, independent way, but the church of Mars Hill just collapsed. And so I would commend you to listen to it because it's this real great examination on church leadership and on how the subtle things can grow to be massive issues over time. Right, if unchecked. If you, if you are a leader in a church in any way, whether you're a staff person, an elder, you lead a ministry, uh, you, you lead a Tuesday night Bible study um, in your own home, but whatever it is, whatever way you're in leadership, I would commend that you listen to this and, and glean some things from it. There's all kinds of beautiful things that we can learn. But, but why talk about a leadership podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Today's passage is about leadership. Uh, we are, for, for reference sake, we are in the final, about to enter the final fourth of the final third of the book of Acts. Uh, <laughs> yes, I require you to be able to do math when you come to church on Sunday morning. Uh, three parts of Acts, you have the, the ministry, the beginning, that, that they're in Jerusalem, and then it's Judea and Samaria, and then you have the ends of the earth that starts with the missionary journeys. Within the ends of the earth, we have three missionary journeys, the final one of which kind of could be split in two. It's the journey, the mission journey, and then the, the, the move to Rome. That fourth missionary journey is Paul's travels to Rome, which we'll close with next week. So we are on that part where he is finishing his third missionary journey. He's returning, slowly making his way back towards Jerusalem at the end of his third journey. And it's worth, at this point, pausing for a second and looking at this map I pulled up. This is a whole kind of draw-out of the missionary journeys of Paul. It says everywhere he went, and it kind of splits it down. I know it's hard to see the different colors, and it's not that important. But what I want you to note 
is, is just the sheer level of geography that was covered by the missionary journeys of this one guy and whoever he brought with him. Here's a man who was breathing fire and, and looking to jail and kill Christians, converted on the road to Damascus, and the Lord took him from here and plopped him on the other side as a new creation and said, no, you're now going to stop killing my people, and instead you're going to lead them. And he faithfully obeyed, and this is the result. We have Rome all the way in the top corner, and we have Jerusalem all the way in the bottom corner. And the, the sheer amount of cities, churches that were started and continued to be poured into, it's just staggering. And when you think about this, Paul did all of this through the Lord's moving in his life and others in a span of just 11 years. That's the time frame of roughly of the missionary journeys. 11 years. In a decade, we went from Jerusalem being the place where the way was prevalent to churches all over this map. It's a huge undertaking. And now Paul is moving into a time of transition. Today we're going to look at um, Romans, or sorry, not Romans, we're going to look at like Acts 20, at the very latter part of Acts 20. And what we will see is Paul is, is working with the people in Ephesus. Some context. He has spent time after his third, at the end of his third journey, working with the Ephesian elders. He spent time in Ephesus. He was there for three whole years. It's not like he just did a pit stop, did a prayer, laid hands on them, gave them a couple of things of curriculum, and then moved on. Paul spent three years with these folks before heading up north for a time and then coming back. And Paul, at this point, wanted to get back to Jerusalem. He actually had a goal of getting back to Jerusalem by the time Pentecost hit. That doesn't end up happening the way that he hoped. And so what happens is Paul is coming south, back past Ephesus, but he doesn't want to stop there because he doesn't have the time. You ever have that friend that you know if you call them, you better have at least two hours? Right? If you don't have two hours in your day at that given moment, you do not call this person. Right? I got to go. Oh, okay. How's, how's Florence? No, I have to go. <laughs> and so Paul knows spending time in Ephesus would take a significant amount of time that he doesn't have. And so what does he do? He sails down past Ephesus, and he, he goes to this town called Miletus. And from there, he summons the elders of the Ephesian church to come down to him. It's a great way to avoid the town. Right? Go a town down and then tell all the leaders to meet him. And so they go about a day's journey down, and they're meeting him. And so the passage we're reading today takes place in that context. It is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church of the Ephesus. And it's his farewell address. They don't know this yet, but Paul is keenly aware that this is the last time he's going to see them. And so in some ways, this is a, a note of encouragement, but in other ways, this is a transfer of leadership from himself to those elders. He's calling them to step up because he's not going to be around anymore. And so as we read the passage today, what we should look for is what are those things that Paul is imparting on them when it comes to being good, faithful leaders of the church. And before we read it, just one more note. Paul is talking to elders. And if you are an elder or a staff person or you lead a Bible study, if you have any kind of leadership role in the church, if you have an influence over other Christians in some way, you should pay extra special attention for sure. But this is not a call out of the elders. <laughs> Don't hear it as that. 
Um, this is a message that applies to all of us because all of us are called to be faithful stewards of the church that God has given us to steward. And so these aren't just, you don't get to check out if you're not, you know, well, I don't feel called to be an elder, so I guess I can just listen to the sports scores. No. <laughs> this is for all. Every one of us. Let's read. This is kind of lengthy, but let's read the words that Paul has to say. Now, for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Imagine that being your call in life. The Spirit tells you, go to these cities. Every single one. <laughs> this is what you're going to get hit with. Let's continue. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, and you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They, were embraced, they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. All right, let's take a breath. It's a lot of scripture. Paul has this laundry list of things. He knows that he's not going to see these people again. This is kind of a last, you know, thing. Have you ever thought about if you had, like, if you were going to see people that you love for the last time, what was the thing that you were going to say to them? That's a hard thing to think about. And so Paul gives them a couple things. He starts by recapping his own ministry to them. 
And he speaks pretty boldly of himself. But we have to understand, he doesn't do this to brag, but to be an example. Humidity, humidity, humility (laughs) and trials are the hallmarks of his ministry. And if you work in the southern parts of the world, I guess humidity is part of that too. Um, But otherwise, it's just humility and (laughs) trials. Um, So he tells us that these trials and these things, it's part of it. He he works with the humble spirits. And everywhere he goes, he's struggling and suffering. But he was proud of the fact that he did not shy away from what? From teaching in public and house to house, the whole counsel of God. He tells him, listen, one of the greatest things that I did, not to lift myself up, but just in terms of importance for you to understand, is I never shied away from teaching you the whole counsel of God. And the two things that he kind of points out are repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Those are the most significant things. If I can impart to you anything, you need to walk with a humble spirit, understand that trials will come, and that I, I can tell you that I have never shied away from preaching something. There wasn't a time where I had the option to keep quiet or speak up for the Lord where I chose the former. I always gave you the whole counsel of God. And you should do the same thing. Then, he tells him that he's heading to Jerusalem. Now, next week we'll get into the final journey to Jerusalem and then eventually to Rome. Um, One of the things you'll notice is that a lot of people start to talk Paul out of going. Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. There's trouble in Jerusalem. People tell him, maybe you shouldn't go there. He goes anyway. He gets in trouble. Um, And one of the things we'll see next week is that there's actually a whole lot of parallel in this final journey of Paul and and the, the journey that Jesus has as he goes to Jerusalem. There's, there's all these little pinpoints that just, just breathe similarity between the two stories. But for now, he's telling them he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he tells them, the Spirit is calling me to go. I am constrained by the Spirit to go. And I know that I will find trouble there. As a matter of fact, I can tell you with certainty, because I'm going to Jerusalem and the trials that will await me there, I will never see you again once I leave here. I know I'm not coming back. Paul was keenly aware of the suffering that he was about to endure as he leaves them and moves towards a city that was going to imprison him and eventually send him in chains to Rome. He knew it. He's going anyway. Christ knew the suffering that he was going to receive at his trial, arrest, beating, crucifixion, but he went anyway. Paul has this radical obedience. He tells him, listen, when trials come, you still got to go. And then, in 26, he tells him this, this, odd, this, this odd phrase. And if I was an Ephesian elder, I'd be terrified of this. I testify this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. And why is he innocent? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He's essentially saying, hey, I taught you everything that, that God says. Um, so you're now responsible Like, you can't plead ignorance. Oh, God didn't tell us that we needed to obey in this way. He's like, you don't get to do that because I preached to you the whole council. And so what he's doing is he's washing his hands clean of responsibility for what awaits them after he leaves. He's saying, listen, I'm going to a place I don't want to go because there's trouble. I'm never going to see you again. And by the way, whatever happens here after I'm gone, I did my part. I faithfully exercised my call and duty to this church and the ones that are around it. And when I leave, 
It's in your hands. And then fourth, he promises them that there's going to be turmoil after he leaves. He says it in the language of there will be wolves that come. Right? Both from outside of the Ephesian church and from within the Ephesian church. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then finally, after he's given them all these warnings and he's told them what they're responsible for, he commends it to them, he prays for them, and he spends some time with them saying their goodbyes. And, and the, the scriptures, the English translations don't do this justice, but the type of send-off that is kind of described here is just this agonizing thing. They spend time weeping together because they know they're never going to see Paul again. There's this keen awareness that he's walking into something dark, but that the Lord wants him there. And so there's a joy in obedience, but also a sorrowfulness in knowing that there's, there's a loss of a brother and there's some suffering that is going to be a part of his life. And then they send him on his way. So what do we take from all of these things? What do we pull out of this for the church today? I think there's four things. And again, a reminder, um, this is not a call out of the leadership of this church or any church. This applies to all of us. Every one of us sitting here that professes the name of Christ ought to have our ears perked on this one. Number one, good leaders in the church do not shy away from proclaiming and obeying and modeling the full truth of Scripture. They don't. The Bible in their lives, the Bible in the life of a good leader is the highest level of authority. Nothing else gets to win out. Not their own practical reasoning, not fear, not budgets or attendance numbers. None of those things get to be the deciding factor of how we lead and how we run and how we govern ourselves as a church and the decisions we make. The only thing that matters to a good leader, as Paul describes here, is that they preach the whole counsel of God. Whatever scripture commands us to do, wherever the Lord leads us, hard or easy, we go. And we pull everyone with us. That's hard. I don't know about you, the sinful nature that, 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 that I suffer under, there's a whole lot of things that scripture calls me to that I would love to rebel against or ignore or just pretend I haven't read yet. But that's not what good leadership is about. You preach the whole counsel of God. You lead in such a way that scripture is the one thing that you obey. Paul ordered his whole preaching and ministry after God's call and nothing else. This means that, that good Christian leaders are constantly in the word of God. How do you live and proclaim the whole counsel of God? Well, you have to know it. <laughs> you know scripture. You understand what the whole counsel of God means. You understand the big picture of the redemptive work of history throughout the Old and New Testaments. You know and understand how God moves amongst his people from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And you understand what God calls us to. You see the various times where the Lord moved his church through hardship and still went and they were bold. And you see the times where the church failed to do so and the Lord punished them as a result. If you ever want to know what the Lord does when a church is not willing to obey, just go back and read through some of the exile passages. The Lord will have his church and he will have it the way he will have it. You can say yes or you can say no and go through a lot of pain and then just say yes anyway later. The 
Lord's going to do what the Lord's going to do. A good leadership doesn't shy away from anything that Scripture commands and teaches it to do, no matter the cost. Number two, good leaders know to expect backlash and pain. They understand that certain decisions can cause bad press or relationships to be filled with strife. Sometimes there's slander. Sometimes there's even persecution. A good church, especially in the world that we live in today, knows that if it's going to be faithful, there's going to be opposition. There's not a, it's not a question of if. It's not that we do church and just hope that nothing bad happens. We know things will come. What we do in here, what we preach in here, what we say in here, what we have to say about the way that God ordered the world and how we are to live and worship completely flies in the face of everything that the culture outside of these walls tells us we ought to be about. And so if we're going to live according to Scripture, the culture out there is going to have beef with it. We just need to accept it. We know it's going to come. Paul consistently would rather have a small, fruitful church of people and then a vibrant church. And this is a really hard one because the culture, culture likes to get upset with us about things. And this isn't just a church thing. This is an individual Christian thing too. If you're going to live out your faith, you're going to upset some coworkers, some family members, some community members. You shouldn't try to. We shouldn't make it a goal. To, like, oh, for, if we're making people mad, we must be doing something right. No. But inevitably, when we live out our faith, we will have times of strife. People will not like it. They won't. Even within the church sometimes. It's just the way it is. Everywhere Paul went, he got kicked out. Jailed, beaten, thrown out of the city. What did he do? He picked himself up and went back in. That's the Christian life. It is full of trouble. If you ever have sat in a church service and they promise you your best life now, or that the Lord is just out to bless you in every endeavor, that somehow you're going to set out your path and the Lord will bless it if you pray hard enough, you've been told wrong. I'm really sorry. I wish it was that easy. Number three. Good leaders protect their church against wolves. And Paul points to two kinds of wolves, right? Those outside and those inside. And here's the thing about wolves. I, I'm not sure I like the word wolf. I, I get the whole wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a good metaphor. But one of the things that we think of when we think of wolves is just a level of ferociousness. Right? And so we look for people in the church who, who have this like aggressive, you know, they're hostile, they want to take things over, they're the mean ones in the body. Wolves aren't a personal type. Wolves come in all kinds of flavors and shapes and sizes. And here's, here's the worst part. A lot of times, wolves aren't intentionally wolves. Many wolves are really great people. Sometimes the nicest people in the church can be wolves. And here's the real hard thing. Every one of us, with our sinful nature as it is, has the potential to be a wolf in the church. Now, I don't say this to discourage you. I'm not sending everybody here on a wolf hunt, looking around, look to your left, look to your right. One of them is probably a wolf. No. <laughs> so don't, don't start thinking about individuals or anything like that. Because here's the other thing to keep in mind. People can be wolves a day and saints another because the Lord is working in their hearts. Right? The Lord called Peter Satan once. He also told him, on this rock I will build my church. 
and loves him. Right? Peter becomes the leader of the early church before Paul kind of takes the spotlight. And so just just because you might have an an exhibition of wolf-like behavior, it doesn't mean that... uh, if you see somebody be a wolf, that doesn't mean that you like cut them off and you're like, get out of here. Like, no. <laughs> but we need to be on guard for anything that is suggestive of wolf-like behavior. Good leaders do not allow the behavior of wolves to take over within the leadership of the church. What are some of the things that can be wolf-like? Well, as we move on next week in some of the scripture that we get into... There's a lot of folks that try to talk Paul out of doing what the Spirit's called him to do. Well, if you go, it'll be painful. If you go, there'll be trouble. Maybe you shouldn't go. Well, the Lord's calling you to go. Well, maybe you shouldn't go. How many times do we try to talk our Christian brothers and sisters out of radical obedience because we just want them to be comfortable? Or we want ourselves to be comfortable? How many times does the church talk itself out of change that the Lord is leading them towards because they're afraid of what will happen. A little upset the way that we've always done things. And comfort wins at the hand of the Lord's call on the life of the church. I've had a couple students over the years of working in youth ministry that have wanted to and felt the call of the Lord to go into ministry only to have parents tell them no because it's not a lucrative enough position. Said, no, I'm not going to pay for you to go to a Christian college. You're going to go here and become an engineer. Because that pays more and you'll get a job. We need to be careful. And the only way we do that is to know the scripture. To understand the subtle ways that wolves in the life of a church can work. And we love wolves. We embrace wolves. We care for wolves. And we pray that they move out of those things. We We don't condemn a wolf. We don't boot a wolf out of the church just because they're doing something like that. It's important to understand that. I can tell you at times in my life, I've been a wolf in a church. (laughs) I have. I'll probably be again. It's part of the tendency that we have. We favor comfort over obedience. And we'll pull ourselves towards that with our natural bent towards sin every time unless the Lord is in our midst and the Spirit is working and active in us to intervene and to, to pull us towards radical obedience. And then finally, he ends this in, in verse 35. Good leaders are more about giving than receiving. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Right? The church today has become this consumer-driven type of thing. Right? We come to the church because it gives us what we need. It, it, you know, uh, I feel fulfilled in worship. Um, you know, it has the right programs for you know, I, maybe I, uh, yeah, I'm a college kid and it has a good college ministry. Uh, I have a new kid and, you know, they have great children's programs. And so it, 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 we, we join churches and we make decisions about the churches we're going to be a part of, a lot of times based on what the church can offer to us. Rather than asking, you know, how has the Lord uniquely gifted me? And is this a church where my gifts could be the most useful to flourish that particular church? Imagine if we did that. Imagine if every one of us in every day, thought of this place as more about what we can give to it than what we could get from it. Whoa. We wouldn't worry about ministry programs or budgets or any of those things. We would just be seeking to serve. Well, I think, I think you know, we have a need for this. Well, I, I could do that. 
Let me go talk to the leaders and see if that's somewhere that I could, I could step up and, and move and, and create some life in this area of church life. Imagine if we did that fully, what it would do. These are hard truths. For most churches I know, there's certain things in a, in a passage like this that are immensely convicting. And I'm sure that as you, as you listen, some of these stick out more than others. You know, and if there's a, there's a conviction or a sense of guilt, then, then don't take that as an angry thing. Don't take that as a condemnation. Don't take that as me preaching down to anybody because we're all in this together. But, but do spend some time in prayer seeking if the Lord is maybe calling you to a, a more radical faithfulness and obedience in the way that you, you lead as a Christian. Both in the church context, in your homes, in your families, in your jobs, in your schools, if you're a student. The church has been shrinking over the past few years. I'm not talking about Stoprez. I'm talking about the church, the big C church. Um, I actually think the church is less shrinking and more consolidating. Uh, I think one of the things we're seeing is that cultural Christianity is starting to die out. That we, over the years and decades and centuries, we've had uh, this church body, many of which are here for, for cultural reasons. It's what you do. And we're losing a cultural Christianity. And here's the reality. Every year that goes by currently, as we are progressing, it will be harder and harder. There will be a more steep cost to being a faithful follower of Christ and being a part of a church. It's going to get worse. You can go home today and say, how was the sermon? That was a downer. You said it's going to keep getting worse. (laughs) The good news is the Lord is at work. He's faithful. And like I said earlier, he will have his church. Things will not ultimately get worse because Jesus is coming back. That's why at the end of Revelation, what does John say as he finishes? Come, Lord Jesus. He's seeing all the things that will happen in the end, and he says, can you come today? We should have that eager anticipation, but we should understand that if we are going to continue faithfully as the church of Christ, that things are going to get more difficult. And I actually think that the Lord is pruning his church, that those who are marginally somehow involved, they might not even be truly transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They might have never bought into it in the way that it's accurately presented. They're walking away. I think the church is becoming more faithful. And to me, that's encouraging. Um, And it should be encouraging to you too. My hope and prayer is that you would heed this call to challenge the leadership of yourself. If you're, if you're an elder, you would think about the way that you lead and what it means to be an elder and be called to shepherd the flock of Stowe Presbyterian. If you're a ministry leader and you're sitting there on a Monday night, you're preparing for a Bible study, you would think, how can I best teach this? You know, maybe there's something that comes up and you know, if I teach this part, someone in the Bible study is going to get mad. Well, ask yourself, Should you teach it anyway? What's the faithful thing to do in this scenario? If it's in there, I never shied away from preaching the whole counsel of God. If you're in your families, you're wondering, you know, how I don't know if anybody's going to be receptive to me, to me leading my family well and and pointing them in the direction of God and and having times of of worship and and thanksgiving and, and love and joy as a family. Well, do it anyway. Put your trust in the one who not only calls you to these things, but walks you through them, guides you through them, encourages you in the midst of them, and loves you 
he will bless those efforts. If you're wondering what radical obedience to the Lord can achieve, we just saw a map. And does that mean every one of us, if we're faithful, is going to conquer like much of the world around that area? No. Does that mean that all of a sudden the entire United States is going to become Christian? No. But the Lord will use faithfulness, and he will produce fruit from it. That's the real message of Acts, after all, is the Lord takes faithfulness and he causes the church to grow. Not because of some special talents of the people that are involved, but because his spirit is at work. My prayer is that the spirit, same spirit, would be working in us today and that we would be faithful to take that call of obedience forward in whatever way he calls us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your steadfast faithfulness and your mercy and your love. We thank you for the way that you used Paul to call a whole region to obedience and faithfulness and trust in you. We pray that you would use him as an example to us, Father, that not that we emulate everything Paul was or everything Paul did, not that we should become little Pauls, but that we take the principles that he gives us in Scripture, that we would be faithful and obedient. Father, remind us of your truth. Remind us of what you call us to. Empower us to understand the breadth and depth of Scripture and enable us to obey. Be with us this week as we go into our homes, into our workplaces, and allow us opportunities to preach the whole counsel of God to those who need it. Lord, we pray that you would give us a burden for those we know who do not have the gospel of Christ. That we would live and proclaim it faithfully, not just in our words, but in our actions. Be with us this week. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, Amen.